The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. We turn in God's Word to study. I just wanted to encourage you that maybe the best verse of the entire book of Hebrews is in this passage. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not only this beautiful passage, it's also sort of explains the entire book. Jesus is the Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. All of this reference to the Old Testament and the systems for which Jesus is now superior to those things. And then he is the same today, the one that we can count on to deal with our sin, and that he will be that same God forever for our future. And so if you're weary or struggling, if you're anxious or fearful, if you just feel blah and sort of like you don't know how things are ever going to go back to normal, be encouraged. Though we live in a world of change, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would move powerfully through the preaching of your word, that people would be convicted, that people would be brought hope in these practical matters that lay before those that follow Jesus. We ask that you would guide our thoughts, that you would help us she would help us to discern. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Scott Sauls is a PCA pastor and he writes a blog. And on his most recent blog, he told the story about R.C. Sproul and Billy Graham. R.C. Sproul once talked at Scott Sauls' church in Nashville. And if you know about R.C. Sproul, he is well known, as Saul says, for emphasizing the sovereign electing grace of God, whereas others like Billy Graham are known for emphasizing human free will. While Dr. Sproul would say we chose God because he first chose us, Dr. Graham might say that God chose us based on his prior knowledge that we would one day choose him. And they would emphasize these things differently. During the Q&A portion of Dr. Sproul's conference, somebody asked him, because of those sort of significant differences, if he thought Sproul would see Billy Graham in heaven, to which Sproul replied, no, I do not believe I will see Billy Graham in heaven. And of course, the room gasped at the idea of Billy Graham not being in heaven. And Sproul continues, Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away from the throne of God that I will be lucky to even get a glimpse of him. Saul goes on to say that R.C. Sproul demonstrated that sincere believers can disagree on certain matters, sometimes quite strongly, and still maintain great respect and affection for one another. That is what the author here is encouraging the people as he concludes this powerful letter. He's worked through the Old Testament, worked through the Old Testament sacrifice system, the tabernacle, the temple, the way in which you used to deal with sin and how Jesus is better than each and every one of those. He has literally spent 
almost 12 full chapters talking about the goodness of God we find in Christ, the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. And now he turns with the last chapter and gives very practical advice about how Christians should live in harmony with each other. You know, Christians do not have a reputation for getting along with others. Christians have a reputation for making mountains out of molehills, for picking on others, for belittling others. What's going on here in Hebrews is that this small church, under persecution and under great difficulty, began to sort of turn on each other. The stress from the outside began to cause stress on the inside, and people were not treating each other, the Christian church, with love and respect. And the author here calls them to treat each other with brotherly love, to draw near to one another in encouraging ways. This passage is sort of the practical application of the rest of the book of Hebrews. If Christ is who he said he is, and Christ did what he said he did, then how should the Christian live now? It's very practical. It's very earthy. He talks very directly about some things that should be true of the Christian life. And it's a hard text. So if this is your first time with us, please feel free to follow up with me about any questions or difficulties you have with the text. You know, if you're in this room, that you can ask me later if something hurt you or something confused you. We want to both speak honestly about what God's Word says and also apply it pastorally and hopefully to His people. And so you're always welcome to follow up with me. But here we have the practical portion, the what do I do now portion of Hebrews. And he focuses on love. How should we live in light of Christ? Love. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. What he's saying when he says brotherly love is remember when we studied that Jesus now said that your God is his God. His God is your God. And now we're focused on the fact that we are all brothers and sisters of Jesus. That we are in the family of God. That what's Jesus is now ours. And he's saying, live that way with each other. Don't pick on each other with controversies. Don't get in each other's way. Don't cause each other to stumble. Live in brotherly love. Of course, Jesus called us to this, to us, to this, in his own words. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, this opportunity that Corona has caused in our lives is an opportunity for us to love one another, to care for our neighbors. Even from a social distancing, it's more physical distancing. Care for our neighbors. Check in with people on the phone and through text, through Marco Polo. Call your friends and family. Call people that just moved to the neighborhood in the middle of all this and don't know anyone. This is a chance to show brotherly love. I love that Jesus says, how they'll know that you're Christians is if you love one another, 
If the community of God takes such good care of each other, they'll say, oh, they, they must be Christians. Friends, I don't think that's our reputation, but I think it can be. I think it can be that if you get near Restoration Southside, you're going to feel loved. You're going to feel cared for. Regardless of whether you disagree with us about things the Bible says or doesn't say, they will take care of you. They will love you. They will call and ask about your problems and about your difficulties and about struggles, and they will draw near to you. They will help. They will show up. What if that's what was true of us? That even when we disagree with someone in their lifestyle choice, in their theological choice, if we disagree with someone, but we still showed brotherly love towards them and humility, he says, let brotherly love continue. Care for each other. He's saying it's hard out there. Care for each other. I've been so encouraged as your pastor to see that there's care going on amid our church that, other, that I find out about, that I had nothing to do with. I didn't start. I didn't prompt. And people are just meeting each other's needs, taking each other's meals, taking each other's groceries. They're caring for each other. Let brotherly love continue. I think it would be really sweet if what they said of Restoration Southside is that those people love each other well. The first thing he calls us to in practical application is brotherly love. The second thing he calls us to is hospitality to strangers. He says it in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality to strangers. Raymond Brown, one of the commentators on this book, said that if love does not issue in a hospitable home, it has scarcely begun to work at all. At this season of time in the world, people were afraid to use inns or hotels. They were dangerous, they were filthy, and they were expensive. And so he's sort of urging people here that as they travel, be willing to open up your homes to others, to bring them into your life and to your world. And he even says this sort of promise that some of you may have entertained angels without knowing it. He's referencing Genesis 18. He's referencing Judges 6 and Judges 13, that people have welcomed people into their home and not know that they were literally welcoming angels in. But we have a better promise than that. That as we love others, it's actually welcoming Christ in, not just angels. Remember when Christ said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. When we love others, when we show hospitality to strangers, it's actually showing our care for Christ. That's why it's such an important text in Matthew 25 that he's saying if, if the Christians will show their life by love for the disadvantaged, for hospitality. Some of you know the name Rosaria Butterfield. She said this about how hospitality changed her life. She said, when I lived as a lesbian activist, I'd been in a relationship for some years, and I thought, this is who I am, this is, what I wanna, this is how I want to live. And she said, when I started writing my post-tenure book, it was on the religious right. And the people who suppose, they supposedly hated, like me. She said, I got to know my neighbor, Ken Smith, who was also a conservative Presbyterian pastor. 
And what was striking is that his home looked a lot like mine. Now listen to this. Among my circles in New York in the 90s during the AIDS crisis, somebody's home was open every night of the week. There was a lot going on. The community had to gather. And not just by invitation only, because this was a crisis. So this was an emergency, and we called ourselves family, and I thought that was unique to the gay community. But it wasn't. Because Ken Smith's community was like this too. Ken Smith's community gathered at his house at all hours. I learned this because he invited me in. For two years, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I mocked and despised and rejected. I accepted them when it worked for me and rejected them at all other times. There was simply no way I would have walked into a church if I hadn't had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. She says this, For two years, I was part of Ken and Floyd Smith's ministry. I met with them once a week at their home. The door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house. People from church, people not from church. Heated and genuine conversation would happen. People would speak honestly and tears would flow. But it was different because Ken would open the Bible and sing from the Psalter and then he would pray and it was so disarming, I couldn't help but go back. It was in this context of hospitality that Ken brought the church to me because it was impossible for me to get to the church without the bridge of somebody's home. You hear that beautiful story, this pastor and his wife opening their home to believers and unbelievers, having people eat at their table and have conversations in their living room, living an open-handed life. It's that that made Jesus accessible to her who would have never darkened the door of a church. Friends, hospitality is central to who we are as Christians. To opening our homes, to letting people get near us, not just our good sides, but our messy sides. And to talk openly and honestly. Let me say it this way. You have access to unbelievers in your life that Jared Huffman will never have access to. And you'll get them to know them better than I ever will. Because you'll get to know them while, they're, while talking about their yard or their garden. You'll get to know them while enjoying a glass of wine on the porch. You'll get to know them by taking a meal when you know they've had a rough week. It's hospitality that opens the door to Christ. And this is true now more than ever. Someone could really genuinely hate Christians, hate Christ, hate the Bible. But if a Christian could love them, could know them, could ask about what's good for them, what's difficult for them. They would be having church brought to them, as Rosaria Butterfield says. That's what I want for us. Yes, bring your unbelieving friends, your de-churched friends, people that used to go and don't go anymore. Yes, bring them with you to church. But things will begin to change at our church when we're doing the work of hospitality outside of our church where people feel loved and known and safe. They will accept an invite to church for someone they know genuinely cares about them. They will. Even if it's just for the sake of the friendship. Who are you getting to know right now? Who are you getting to know right now in your world at yoga or CrossFit or the foodies in the world, or with music, or with work, who are you getting to know? 
that you could open up your home to and possibly open the door for Christ to come into their heart and life. He urges us to do love, to agree with one another, and to work through our disagreements. He urges us to hospitality. And he also urges us to empathy and practicality. Did you see it? Look in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. He wants them to remember those who are in prison as if you are with them. It's another central and serious help to us as Christians of living lives of empathy. That your struggle sort of becomes my struggle. That I'm overwhelmed because you're overwhelmed. Empathy and practicality. He's saying, don't forget people who are in prison. Now, we don't know specifically whether these people who are in prison for being Christians, being persecuted, there's probably some of that, or whether these are also people who have been in prison in that sense because of something that they did wrong. But ultimately, he's saying, Go and visit those in prison. Remember them. Care for them. Care for them as if it was you in there with them. He said in Hebrews 10, 32-34, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And at other times you stood side by side with those who were treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. He's saying live generously. Live empathetically. Empathetically is is this voice that when someone is struggling goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're hurting. That must be so hard. I can't imagine how difficult that is. But can I sit with you in it? Can I pray with you in it? Can I bring you a meal with you in it? Because I care. And if there's any way I can take some burden off of you and put it on me, I'd really like to do that. You see how beautiful of an ethic that is? To live in love, to live in hospitality, to live in empathy and caring, practically speaking, for those who are in prison. And then he turns to purity. Now, I want to say, as if we dive into this section of the Scripture, that I think it's important that we have a posture of purity and the practice of purity. A posture of purity and the practice of purity. But this is hard. This is hard for godly people. This is hard for people that don't know and trust God. But what the writer here is offering is a genuinely beautiful picture that the purpose of sex is for the flourishing of humanity that it's supposed to be held in high honor. Now, if I say something when explaining to you what God's word means here and it hits you the wrong way or it wounds you in some past, uh, connects to something in your past, would you please let me know? Would you follow up with me? You can easily find my email and we'll get together when it's appropriate and we'll talk through some of those things. I know there's a lot of shame in dealing with sexuality And that's not what I want for you. I want grace. Jesus calls us to grace. The myths that he's referencing start here in four. He said, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
There it is. There's these two groups of people that he's referencing that we've sort of seen play out. There's these ones who think sexuality is sort of provides for an inferior spiritual life. And so there's a group of people that would live celibately as if to say, we won't touch that part of the world because that is inferior spiritually. Obviously, it's not as common now. And then there was these other group of people who thought we could just use this gift from God in any way we choose to, in any way we feel like is appropriate, and that's what we're going to do. And so he's sort of addressing these different sorts of broken ethics and giving us a beautiful marital ethic for love in the marriage bed. And before I get too specific here, I do want you to remember this. This is what he said for those who put their trust in Christ. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable festivals, angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to be sprinkled that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I just want to remind you that even as we talk through this, those of you with deep and profound life-altering shame about the mistakes that you have made regarding sex and intimacy, there is grace for you in the blood of Christ. In fact, no one, no one has had a perfect sexual ethic other than Jesus, and he puts that on his people, and he takes our sexual brokenness and is punished for our sin so that we can be clean. If you have things in your past that you just can't forgive yourself for, I'm sad that you can't forgive yourself because Jesus will forgive you when you go to him. Now, that said, he calls for the marriage bed to be undefiled. It's a difficult topic. And again, you can follow up with me. Tim Keller was once asked in New York City, how do you know when the gospel's really breaking through, when when the gospel's taking root in a community? And he sort of off the cuff said, when people stop sleeping together. Now in Manhattan, it's many, many single people. And so his point was, is that when Jesus really gets a hold of a community, their sexual ethic becomes more refined, more biblical, more careful, more restrained. One of the main ways that we can know that someone has been gripped by the gospel is they start this fight against the sexual brokenness in their own heart and body. Now, it's going to take you all of your life to be in that fight, and you're going to have setbacks and losses, but he wants you in that fight. That's your posture. Your posture is that I'm going to try as hard as I can, depending on God, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to try. My posture is that I'm going to try. And then the practices is I'm going to surround myself with good habits, good life practices, so that I can try and protect the marriage bed. At this point, I'm starting to feel a little warm up here. So here's some practical advice coming from this. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. In order to keep the marriage bed undefiled, you have to use the marriage bed. 
Hallelujah, can I get an amen? You have to use the marriage bed. You have to love one another and work at building time in for one another. That you have to care for each other in this way. We have the wrong and broken sexual ethic shown in our faces all the time. Non-stop from our phones, from our laptops, from our computers, from what's streaming on TV. Non-stop says do whatever you want to whoever you want as often as you want. And part of how you keep the marriage bed undefiled is that you use your marriage bed with your spouse in loving care and protection of your marriage. Christians should be having the most fulfilling, safe, satisfying sexual lives of anybody because they know what sex is for. Some of you might think here in this moment that Yes, but you don't understand the tension that we're under, the, the frustration, the anger that we have, the resentment that we have. Once we heal that, then we will rejoin in the marriage bed. You forget that the marriage bed exists in part to foster that healing. Meaning you can't say once things are fixed, then we'll try again. It's the trying again that helps to fix things. What resentment are you holding against your spouse that's keeping you out of the marital bed? Perhaps God has given you this gift, this medicinal side of sex, which will heal your relationship, soften your attitude towards them, soften the resentments that you're bearing against them. In order to keep your marriage bed undefiled, you have to use it with your spouse. Now, all of us struggle with this sexual brokenness. Stuff on the internet distracts us, men and women. Overemphasis on the perfect body distracts us. Emotional relationships with other people can distract us. Even quietly resenting your spouse distracts you from caring well for them. Aaron and I didn't see each other for a month, a short time after we were married. I had started an internship at a church, and she had led students from her high school onto a trip to Europe. And originally, I was going to go with her, but when I had this opportunity to work with Joe Novenson and learn from him, we said, I've got to skip the trip. We've got to go do the internship. So for a month, us newlyweds were apart. Joe and I were coming back from General Assembly in Dallas, and we had to take a plane, and then we had to take a shuttle, and then from the shuttle, we had to take a car, him drive us back up the mountain. And he looked at me, and he said, Jared, you look sick. You look sick. And I, I felt sick. I had been away from my love too long. I had been away from Aaron. I had been away from the marital bed too long. And some of you can relate to that story. See, when you're younger, when you're away, you fill your minds with your spouse's good features and attributes and attitudes that you like about them. But as time wears on, you might fill your head with your spouse's weaknesses idiosyncrasies, what bothers you about your spouse. And then when you're around them, you're irritated. You've been thinking about these things and then you see them and then you say them. Thinking about these things and then you see them and then you say them. Think about how you're thinking about your spouse. My marriage changed for the better two years ago when it occurred to me that when I thought something negative of Aaron, I know it's hard to imagine, I thought something negative of Aaron, I would literally speak out loud her strengths to myself. 
If I was in the car and I was frustrated, I would say out loud, yes, she's so beautiful and she's so brilliant and she's so hardworking and she's such a good mom and she's so much fun. And I would speak the realities back into my own heart. Friends, think about what you're thinking about with your spouse. Learn to rehearse their strengths and stop rehearsing their weaknesses. You don't want someone sitting around rehearsing your weaknesses, do you? Are you investing in your marriage? Recently during COVID-19, Aaron said, I'd love to see you do something for me that I like. Not just be a good guy or be encouraging. Take me on an adventure. Let's go do some sort of experience together, whether hiking or trying something new, but let's do something together. Her point was is that when we love our spouse, we tend to love them like we like to be loved instead of loving them like they like to be loved. It's a searching question. Do you have the courage to ask yourself that? Look at your spouse right now. Look in their eyes. When is the last time you did something just for them? Something that they like? In order to keep the marriage bed undefiled, you have to use the marriage bed. In order to keep marriage undefiled, you have to love your spouse in ways that is meaningful to them. Meaningful to them. And in order to keep the marriage bed undefiled, you have to keep other people out of the marital bed. That's figurative and literally. Don't be comparing Don't be uh, in your head or on an internet screen emphasizing the wonder and beauty of others. Keep others out of your marital bed, emotionally, physically, virtually, even in your heart. Keep them out. And that's a struggle because it's so easy now for people to get in. And so keep them out. So in order to protect your marital bed, you have to use it. You have to keep others out of it. You have to love your spouse in ways that is meaningful to them. And in order to keep the marriage bed undefiled, act like you love them, even when you don't like them. The will and actions lead the way for the emotions. Tim Keller said it this way, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that as time goes on, he says this, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they'll become less frequent and less deep. This is And you'll become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. Decide to love. What he's saying is that it's an action of the will. Let the emotions follow. Don't decide whether you're going to love your spouse out of the emotions. Love them and the emotions will follow. Think about how you're thinking about your spouse. And here's where he says it. Because God is judge. God is judge. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This is where he says it. He says, you cannot live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do to whoever you want to do it to 
just because you feel like it. He said God has called his people to have a higher sexual ethic than that. Aaron said this text is so hard because it's brutal because no matter what side you struggle on, it's convicting no matter who you are. So I want you to hear me again very closely. All sexual sin can be covered by the blood of Christ for those who put their trust in him. And healing from sexual brokenness takes time and needs grace and help and counseling. But God is saying you cannot take the issue lightly. He is saying he gets to decide about sex and its design. And he is saying we have to live pure in our posture, our desire, and in our practices and in the ways that we're trying to minimize our falls and maximize our victories. And you should be near enough to some friend that you can talk about how to have the right posture and have the right practices. Friends, obviously, I have struggled with this. All kinds of different types of sexual sin, fake intimacy from a computer screen, seeking pleasure for myself, coveting lust, desiring things that don't belong to me. So I'm not saying that some of you have this problem. I'm saying most of us do. And we should fall on our knees and experience the unbelievable, overwhelming grace of God for people who struggle. And then we should say, God, we want you to change us. We know it's going to take time. We know it's not going to be easy. We know we're going to fail, but we want you to change us. This call for purity should cause us to not lose heart. It should motivate us to fight the good fight. A friend of mine said about this text, it reminds me of the East of Eden quote, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Since we are relieved from needing to earn our salvation, now we can go live our lives the way that he wants us to. That's what he's saying. I've done the earning. I've, I've merited your holiness. Now you go and act like it. You go and grow up into it. You go up and live up into your holiness. Because Jesus judged God. And now he's calling you to live a godly life. Excuse me. Jesus was judged by God on your behalf. And now you can go live like your record says you have. And then he says, contented, contented, free of the love of money, not just money. Look in verse uh, four. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Free from the love of money. No, it's not, you can't have money. It's that you're free from the love of money. It's not that um, you can't use your money to give yourself some comforts. But what it's saying is, is that love of money shouldn't drive you. There are lots of wealthy people in the Bible. Solomon to Lydia to Boaz, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon. But we're supposed to live contented. It'll never be enough. We know that. From Carnegie to Brad Pitt to Jim Carrey to Tom Brady, they've all said in some form... Whatever I have now, it's not enough. I need more. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, whoever loves money never has enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So here's what he says is our ethic, friends. To live generously, free of the love of money. He says, I do not believe, excuse me, C.S. Lewis says this is kind of a guiding principle about how generous to be. He says, I don't believe one rule can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. He said, there ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. You know, often the church kind of comes to the people with our hat in our hands and says, sure would be nice if you gave. What if the church demanded the staff and the leaders of a church to be generous? They gave so wildly, so lavishly. Say, we want you to plant more churches. We want you to support more missionaries. We want you to love more social justice causes. We want you to live generously, church leadership. Instead of us begging you, what if you were demanding us to live more generously so that we can restore people and places with outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice? Living difficult for us so that others can find Christ. Then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look with me in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants us to live this way knowing that Jesus Christ won't change. He wants us to trust the word, trust his call on our lives, and be reminded that Jesus Christ will not change. So the ethic he calls us to here is that love, brotherly love should continue. People should be, want to be around Christians because of the way that we care for each other. That we're so hospitable to strangers and those in prison. That we're pure in our posture and our practices together. We're empathetic in the way that we love others. And here that we're generous that we care for others, that we don't love money. And the reason that you can take comfort in all of that, that your ethic is sacrificial, that you're going to live a life of giving away so that others can flourish, is this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus will not change. Your sin will change. Your circumstances will change. Your health will change. Your bank account will change. Your friendships will change. This pandemic will change. But Jesus Christ will not change. Those of you that don't know him, fall on your knees before him. Those of you who needed to be encouraged and reminded, fall on your knees before him and say, because you stay the same, God, I can change to be more like you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, and I ask that you would minister your grace through your Holy Spirit to your people. I pray that you would bind up the wounded and the shamed and cause them to lift their head high, that they can be part of the numbered in heaven. And I pray, God, that you will call all of us to fight the good fight to live lives of generosity and hospitality, empathy, love, and purity, not because we have to, but because we can. 
And we ask that you would empower us to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.